Well, eventually we're going to get to our text, uh, which will be from Acts chapter 20, starting with verse 17. So I'm just letting you know that so you have a head start and get there. As I mentioned earlier, uh, last week was our testimony Sunday, but there are only so many people you can have give testimony in one day and still get home. So uh, today, um, for the same reason that we had our the rest of our overseers, the pastor here is uh, just one of the overseers uh, who is tasked with the specific role of, of this teaching assignment. Um, for the same reason, uh, I'm going to share a little bit of my testimony. I'm going to do my very best to stay on script with it because uh, there's a lot that I could say about the overwhelming grace of God to a wretched sinner like me. <clears throat> so I don't, I don't remember a time in my life when I wasn't aware that God created me for Himself and my sins separated me from Him, but Jesus died and rose again to make me right with Him. My mother uh, and my, my father was a, a new believer, um, something of a first-generation Christian at that point. Um, my mother was uh, not a new believer, but was a young learning believer who was yet undiscipled but what she taught us passionately and with certainty is that God has no grandchildren that we each have to come into our own faith in Christ we don't get there by going to church or being part of the right family or any of those things and so she um, she taught us things that she was still learning herself. She's often said that she learned most of what she learned in her early days of Christianity from children's Bible storybooks and from Sunday school songs. And so when we were still infants, um, she would sing those songs and hymns to us and she would um, teach us about Jesus. And so that was all I knew from my earliest time. And I never doubted that. I, I didn't really struggle with um, with wrestling with whether or not God was real. I, moments that, that we generally all have at various times when we need to wrestle with things. But, but I believed. I was only five or six when I formally thought it through and prayed to receive Jesus as my Lord and Savior at Vacation Bible School over at Sawyer Highlands Baptist Church. Leon Clint was there in the back room it was the choir room at the time i don't know what they do with that over there now they took the baptismal out everything's different i don't know uh even baptist if you take ne never mind this in case there's anybody from sawyer or converge listening online gotcha anyway uh and, and he led me through the prayer praying what i already knew in my heart but it was my conscious moment of making that turn but that was just the beginning of a long journey my story is the story of a heart prone to wander. While I trusted Jesus at a young age, it wasn't much later that I was exposed to pornography, and that ended up shaping much of my life and my spiritual struggles ever since. <clears throat> I was an active boy with an active imagination, both for good and for ill. I loved being a kid. I was great at being a kid, by the way. You know, at 10 years old, I peaked. That was... That, that, I was a horrible middle schooler, but I was a great 10-year-old. 
I loved being a kid, but inside I was also carrying adult baggage. I think that was true for a lot of us Gen Xers, uh, folks around my age. There, there was that transition in, in generation, uh, in generational values in our society, and we were suddenly bombarded with things that our parents didn't think about until they were older. And that's only, only increased exponentially since then. We didn't put the labels on things back then that we do now, but as I grew up, I battled ADHD, anxiety, depression. Most of all, I battled a heart prone to leave the God I loved. All through junior high and high school, I felt like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. My outer image often didn't match my inner turmoil. I regularly wondered if I was saved at all. I wondered that even as I increasingly knew that God was calling me to be a pastor. It was about my junior year in high school when that became very clear in my mind, but I think He had been moving me in that direction from a young age. After graduation, I went to Wheaton College planning to play football there. Unfortunately, I lacked the finances to pay for my education and the emotional maturity to handle the situation. The day I quit the football team was the day I began the second most important relationship of my life. The following winter, Shelly and I were married. And for the past a year and a half later, not like fall to winter. But for the past 35 years, she's been God's primary tool for making me the man He's called me to be. I joined the Air Force and we moved around the country, living on both coasts and in Texas. We loved and served churches in each place in a wide variety of ministries, from children's ministry. Shelly was involved with the TV ministry when we were in Texas. Uh, we were involved with youth and, and Sunday school and did a number of things. When I got out, I took a job as a manager with family Christian stores, serving Christians of all different stripes. God used all of that to prepare me, really to prepare us for what He had in store. Teaching me to take responsibility for others was something that He began with the values of my parents and grandparents when I was young. Teaching me to be a godly man He's still working on. I knew he was calling me to ministry and he was leading me back to Three Oaks to do it. To shorten the story, I quit my job to take a youth pastor position at the River Valley area and accepted a coaching position at RV under Tom Palin. God was bringing football back into my life for his purposes rather than as the idol I had let it become. Only I didn't get that youth position. Football was about to start. And everything that we believed about ministering in the area was still true. I just didn't have a job. In the course of an afternoon, I uh, became a substitute teacher and picked up whatever work I could get, including working for a number of summers as a roofer for George Fry. Through those relationships, we started a Bible study at our house for students. Some of you in this room were there. still have notes from you. During that time, we saw the need for a new gospel work in Three Oaks. I had never dreamed of planting a church, did not desire it. I was opposed to it in my mind and experience. The only time I saw new churches were when Christians couldn't get along with each other and they split. I didn't want anything to do with that. So I never imagined what God would do. And in 2003, Real Life Community Church was born. 
20 years later, here we are, as the song says, still crazy after all these years. I still find that in my own strength, my heart is prone to wander. But by God's grace, He has sealed it for His courts above. I am and have always been utterly unworthy of His love and inadequate to serve and lead His church. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. It took me years to understand my identity in Christ and the absolute safety and security of His sovereign grace. But because His Word is trustworthy, His Word is trustworthy, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground, anything else I might put my hope in, is sinking sand. And so, here we are. There's a whole lot more detail to talk about. We can do that over conversations over the years. And shoot, most of you know me my whole life. And so, you've seen it. You've seen the idiocy. <laughs> but we're here because God is good. And just as the overseers shared their testimonies last week, um, None of the stories are about us. It's about Christ in us. And if you ever think for one moment that you see something good in me, I can tell you it's not me. It's Christ. But I died. And now Christ lives in me. It's absolutely crucial as Christians for us to understand the centrality of doing life together as Christ's church. It's central to our life in Him. It's not optional. He's called us to share our lives with one another with intentional intimacy as those who are united to Christ and to one another through Christ. So today, I'd like us to take a look at a snapshot of that as it relates to church leadership in Acts chapter 20. So if you have not already, I invite you to turn to Acts 20, verses 17 to 38. This is the word of God. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> Although I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I've declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. 
Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which He bought with His own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Now I commit you to God and to the word of His grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. And everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work we must help the weak, remembering the words the Lord Jesus Himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. When He had said this, He knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced Him and kissed Him. What grieved them most was His statement that they would never see His face again. Then they accompanied Him to the ship. May the Lord add His blessing to the reading of His Word. Father God, as we open Your Word today, we do so as an act of worship. We acknowledge, Father, that this is Your Word. It's not the Word of human teachers. It's not my Word. It's Yours. And to the extent that my words align with the truth of yours, then may they be fruitful. To the extent that they fail to do that, Father, make them forgetful. Lord, as we open your word, open our hearts to it. Change us from within. Help us to understand more and more what you expect of your church, all of us who comprise your church, and specifically, of those that you have set apart to lead your church. We pray this in the name of the one who perfectly carries out your will. The name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, so uh, now that we've gotten past the testimony part, we've seen the text, it's time to actually look at it and have, have a, more of a sermon time. So our text, as we look at Acts 20, is set within the, the larger context of Paul's travels to spread the gospel. He spent an extended amount of time in Ephesus, three years, as he just pointed out in the text. And the transforming reality of the gospel of Christ had such an impact that new believers were turning away from their idols and superstitions. That's to be expected. That's what we would, would normally, naturally expect when the Holy Spirit of God moves into a person that these things that, that compete with God, that get in the way, would naturally not fit anymore. Like old clothes. we got to get rid of them. So as they get rid of them, there is a ripple effect. Because those things were at the very heart and culture and economy 
in Ephesus. So this mass repentance, the number of people that were turning to Christ, putting away their idols, getting rid of their sorcery books and their incantations, leaving the culture of paganism behind, it's having an impact economically. It's having an impact socially. And the bottom line of the idol makers starts to be hurt by it. And once people start to lose money, they get upset. And a riot broke out. While on his way to Jerusalem, Paul sailed near Ephesus. He's, he's left uh, Ephesus. He's heading, he's doing his traveling, and now he's moved to go to Jerusalem. So he comes back and he sails nearby Ephesus. And he wanted to see them. His heart is with them, but he didn't want to be delayed on his trip. So rather than going to Ephesus, where he could expect that just the natural emotion of things and any number of things that could happen would delay him, he sent for the elders to come meet him at Miletus. Today, we're not studying the larger passage, but we'll consider the interaction between Paul and the Ephesian elders as it relates to church leadership. With that in mind, as we look at this, and I hope you'll see it clearly as we go, the core reality is that real Christian leadership is rooted in love and openness. Real Christian leadership is rooted in love and openness. It's the fruit of personal investment and devotion to people and the gospel. Per investment in and devotion to people and the gospel that redeems them. Love drives them to share their lives with those under their care. That's the nature of Christian leadership. Whether it's in the church or elsewhere, as a Christ follower, when we lead, we lead like Christ. Make sense? That's how it should work. So in the church, where we are the body of Christ, then that should be the best possible example of what Christ-like leadership looks like. And what we see here in this picture, and we see it actually in, in all of Paul's letters, he has this personal connection to the people. We saw it when we looked through uh, 1 Thessalonians. I mentioned that last week. That He said, we love you so much. This was actually our memory verse last week. We love you so much that we are delighted not only to share the gospel with you. In other words, not just to do the ministry, the work of the ministry, to teach you the Bible, to help you get saved, to help you get discipled. Not only that, but to share our very lives with you. To walk in the mud with you. To go through the ups and the downs and the heartbreak and the rejoicing with you. When you bled, we bled. When you laughed, we laughed. And that was our joy. That's the picture of Christian leadership throughout the Bible. That may not be the picture of church leadership that you've experienced or seen in your life. We want to understand what God says. So as we work through this, you can see on your uh, page and your outline there, there's a lot of points. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on them. I want to try to cruise through them, and uh, hopefully we'll be able to, uh, to get this concept across as we go. First, you can see in verse 18, church leaders must live openly. What does he say? He starts, he starts out, you know, you know how I lived among you. While I was with you from the very first time I, I got there, you know, they know how he lived. It was open. 
It was in front of them. They knew his character as well as his teachings. They shared their lives, everything out on the table, nothing hidden. Christ followers, and especially church leaders, must live with nothing hidden. It's a, it's a foretaste of heaven. It's an echo of Eden for us to be the church. We are the reflection of the reality of Christ in the world. We are His ambassadors. Therefore, what we do in church, even when, when we're singing here, this is what heaven is like. Now this is a tiny, tiny scale, right? But that's what heaven is all about, is being caught up in the worship of our God in, in, in intimate connection with Him and with one another, with no sin, sorrow, shame, nothing getting in the way. All the heartbreak exploded by the reality of Christ in our midst. The church is a foretaste of that. You know, that's what it was like in the beginning before sin entered the system. God created human beings to bear His image to walk with Him in intimacy, and we're told that the man and the woman were naked and unashamed. And as you've heard me say before, the, the, the connotation there of naked is not, the focus is not on wardrobe. It's naked unto one another. It's a nakedness that there's nothing hidden. There's nothing guarded. There's no shame because there's nothing to be ashamed of. Innocent, like babies. That picture is how we are supposed to live in the church. Keep your clothes on. We're not talking about that. But we are called to live open to one another. Nothing hidden. All of it on the table. Don't fall into the trap. Most of us already have. We've been raised with it. We've known it our whole life. I grew up in a family of beauticians. Image was a big deal for us, right? So you, you, it's always a matter of what it looks like to other people. And I learned to do that in my spiritual life as well, to, to put on a show so that people thought that I was better than I was. Maybe some of you had that same experience. That is the opposite the, op- the exact 180 degree opposite of church life. Real church life is naked unto one another. You know how I lived among you, Paul says. He says it over and over again. I loved you so I gave you my life. Not just investing my time, not, not you know, like a professional minister who, who is checking a box. It's my vocation, it's my job. No, I'm doing it, Paul says. And every Christian minister should. Because you're my blood. We're in this. And every time you cut yourself, I bleed. Church leaders must live openly. It's one of the reasons that I'm thrilled to serve with the group of men that you just affirmed as overseers for this church because we don't do fake and i'm thankful for that i don't know about you but i've been enough around enough religious fakiness in my life even good people that i love dearly even many of you even me sometimes when the fertilizer hits the fan We want to hide it. We want to show up to church while our entire world falling apart 
and people say, how are you doing? Oh, I'm fine. God is good all the time. You know, he is. But you ought to mean it when you say it. Not just try to get everybody to get off your back and not show the warts. You and I stumble. We sin. We struggle. We face hardship. We spend so much time praying about physical ailments. Everybody here is going to go through it. If you haven't, you will. We're all going to die. That's a guarantee. The Bible says in Hebrews 9, 27, 28, everyone is appointed to die once and to stand before God. Jesus is the cure for the wrath that will come to us when we stand before God. So why in the world, if we're going to get to heaven and know each other completely, we're going to have the guards taken down, why would we be hiding stuff now? Let me just throw a little thought out there to you when we confess our sins one to another this isn't like going into a box to have some guy you know give you absolution or what it's not that it's not what we're talking about when when we're talking about confessing our sins one to another what we're talking about is living openly not hiding what i'm struggling with not pretending i'm stronger than i am so that we can walk together in Christ. That's why we have the church. It's also why we're commanded to gather together. We're commanded to love one another. Sometimes we get this romantic idea that it just should all happen organically. It's a choice. We have to prioritize these things. Church leaders in particular must live openly. Let's move on. Verse 19, leading the church requires loving endurance that, inc- that overcomes adversity. Leading the church requires, requires loving endurance that overcomes adversity. Again, we see in, uh, in verse 19 here. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears, although I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews. Now, as we hear this, he's talking not sometimes people say, well, look at him bragging about how humble he is. It's not that. We're thinking of it wrong. Humility and tears are the opposite of boasting, particularly in this culture. Paul's describing his weakness and his pain. And yet he points out he kept going despite hardship and persecution. That's what love does. Amen, somebody. That's what love does. It keeps going. And when it gets hard, it keeps going. And when it doesn't feel like it, it keeps going. When people come against it, it keeps going. It endures and overcomes for the sake of the beloved. That's the attitude all Christians are to have, and most especially those who lead. So what Paul is saying to them here, as he says in in his other letters, is, look, you don't have to take my word for it. You saw me. You watched what happened. I was with you. I lived openly before you. And so you're aware of the fact that I loved you even when it cost me. And I wasn't letting anything stand in the way of giving you the whole gospel, the whole counsel of God. Leading the church requires loving endurance 
that overcomes adversity. Leadership is always hard. How much more so when we're leading God's people, when we're shepherding God's flock? You see, the devil doesn't really care if you turn your little business into a Fortune 500 company. That is of small consequence. It might seem big. He's, he's really happy if he can get you focused on that because now you've just made that an idol that, that gets between you and God. So if you're a bad leader in business, he might snicker at you, but he's not really focused hard on it. He's going to use it. But if you represent Jesus Christ, literally all hell will break loose against you. You can count on it. You overseers, you know. You've seen it. The devil will resist you. He will come against you. He will attack you. He will seek to make you fall. How often, how many times have we seen people with great respect, great influence, who wore the name of Christ and fell into scandal? How wonderful. We should, we should actually be amazed and appreciate it more. How wonderful when people don't. I quoted John MacArthur earlier in, in, in the service, and, and <laughs> MacArthur's been pastoring at the same church since the year I was born. And I got a white beard. I'm not, I'm not young. Now, you might be controversial, but you didn't find moral scandal. Billy Graham... People actually conspired and paid money to try to set him up. To try to make the guy fall. That doesn't happen to just everybody. That happens to those that represent Christ. It is crucial for us to recognize that if we're going to lead God's people, if we're going to be God's people, we will be under attack. If you only are thinking of government persecution or, or societal pressure, you're not thinking big enough. Because it's a spiritual attack. And it may come in those forms. Yes, it certainly does in many places. But it's the opposition of our enemy who will seek to make it too hard for you to resist temptation. He will seek to punch holes in your integrity. He will seek to make it too daunting, too exhausting to continue in the walk or in the ministry. Leading the church requires loving endurance that overcomes adversity. Notice in verse 20, God's leaders demonstrate a devotion a devotion. To discipleship. God's leaders demonstrate a devotion to discipleship. He says, You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. Paul proclaimed any truth that would be helpful to them hard truth, culturally unpopular truth, whatever they needed to know to grow in their discipleship and become fully devoted followers of Christ. Notice that the teaching was both public and formal, like this, at, at gatherings. Maybe it's a Bible study or, 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 or 
you know, gathering at the synagogue and also house to house in private. Paul invested his time and energy into teaching them sound doctrine from God's Word. He took the mission that Jesus gave us seriously to make disciples. That is our number one job. We need to see things through that lens. Not just for leaders, for all of us as Christ followers. Leaders at the forefront, right? It's not the, it's not the, the job in the military for the officers to wage war. It's the job of the entire military. Some do that toting a rifle on the front lines. Some do that directing others in leadership. Some do it flying planes. Some do it uh, serving in the kitchen. But all of them, whether they're pushing paper or they're driving a tank, all of them contribute to the one mission, to wage war. As Christ followers, our mission is to go into all the world and make disciples. That's the job. That does not exclude the person next door or in your home or sitting next to you even at church. So everything we do needs to have that lens attached to it. Godly leaders demonstrated devotion to discipleship. When we talk about discipleship, what we're talking about is creating fully formed followers and lovers of Christ. So that those who are being discipled, the the whole concept of it is that they are becoming like the Master. So you and I have the responsibility for ourselves to become like the Master. That involves studying God's Word. It involves obeying God's Word. If you master those two things, then we'll talk about the third. Come back to me in 20, 40 years. We'll see. That's really it. When we know God's Word and we obey, we live out God's Word, then we truly are disciples of Christ. Isn't that what he said? If you obey my commands, then you really are my disciples. We must, as Christian leaders, be devoted to discipling those under our charge, under our care. That's that's why you're here. If you're not sure, take a look at Ephesians chapter 4. We're not going to turn there, but you can jot it down. Ephesians chapter 4, we see that this is one of the gifts that God gives to the church is those teachers, evangelists, preachers, pastors that, that He puts in place for the building up, for the equipping of the saints for works of service. It's the job of the church leaders, particularly the overseers, elders, bishops, pastors, same, same role in, in various ways. Particularly, it's our job there to make sure that the folks up here are helping the folks in the, in the pews, I would normally say, but we have padded chairs here, so you know, you can follow me. To be able to do what God calls you to do. It is not the job of those in professional ministry, of those in, in a vocational setting, or even in a, a lay ministry situation as overseers. It's not their job to do the work of ministry as leaders. 
That's their job as Christians. It's the job of every Christian, all of us. That does not exclude the leaders, but don't get it... Don't fall into the trap, and this was much more common, I think, in a, in a previous day, but I think we also still see it today. Don't fall into the trap of thinking, well, you know, the pastor really needs to share the gospel with that person. I, I can't do that. Let me call the pastor because they need to know about it. Listen, don't hesitate to call me. But people don't listen to pastors. Somebody say amen. They don't. Think about it. And I can tell you this for a fact because I saw it happen like that when I became a pastor uh, officially. You know, people you know started to see me as that. They listened to me differently before we started the church when I was working for George. I could have conversations up on the roof, and it it was taking taken differently because I was just a dude. Once you put pastor on there as a title, then it's like, well, you know, you're paid to say that. Course you believe that. You know. Somehow, you know, you, you you come into a position and you have no more struggles in life. And you have perfect faith, ten out of ten all the time. Yeah, right. That's just not true. Nothing changed other than the role I was in. But people listen differently. So you will always have a more powerful ministry with your circle of influence than I or any preacher ever can. Because you're invested. You're connected. My investment is in you. My heart is for you. And I have my circle of influence, and you're here in it. And my family and the people around me, yes, absolutely. But I don't have your circle of influence. We all have a part to play. Leaders have to demonstrate a devotion to discipleship, to training. Pressing into verse 21, we see that God's leaders are committed to reaching the lost. So it's, it's not just preaching to the choir, in other words, and, and teaching those who are already in Jesus and training them. It is that. That's, a, that's a, a place of devotion, but it's also a commitment to reaching the lost. Verse 21, I've declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. So he's talked about discipling the Ephesians in public and, and house to house, training them, helping them, getting them to understand sound doctrine, to know the Word of God. But he also points out that to these outside who were yet unbelievers, I'm preaching constantly for them to repent. Not just to turn around and clean their life up, but to repent, turn to God, and have faith in our Lord Jesus. Christian leaders must not only demonstrate a devotion to discipleship, they must always be committed to, to reaching the lost. Paul's focus was not merely on those who belong to the church already, also to those who are yet unsaved, calling them to repent and believe. The mission to make disciples involves both the training of believers and the conversion of unbelievers. So when we hear that, you know, you may have, have heard Jesus' uh, great commission to, to go, into all, go into all nations, make disciples, right? You may have heard that and thought, that that only means reaching the lost. That's not what 
disciple-making is. But that is where disciple-making starts. Because if you're not following Jesus, then you can't be a disciple. It, it goes hand in hand, right? You've got you to be that. Conversely, you can't be a Christ follower and not be a disciple. Let that sink in. If I'm not serious about growing in Christ, I'm not a disciple. I can't really call myself a Christ follower. We use the term Christian as a religious label, but it actually means little Christ. It was a term of derision because these little Christs were going around representing Jesus. People looked at it. It was kind of like the 70s calling people a Jesus freak. Man, if people aren't calling you a little Christ, a Jesus freak, if you don't seem weird to them, you ain't trying, bro. When He changes you from the inside, then that change shows up on the outside. But it has to start with coming to the place of recognizing I am dead in my sins and separated from God and I have to turn from my way to His way and receive Jesus Christ. God's leaders are committed to reaching the lost. The next section, verses 22 to 24, point this out. Real leadership prioritizes service over self for the sake of the gospel. It always makes me happy when I can get Air Force Corps values in there. Real leadership prioritizes service over self for the sake of the gospel. Verse 22 and following, And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. But I don't care. Verse 23, I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prisons, prison and hardships are facing me. But I don't care. Verse 24, However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. In other words, I don't care about these other things. I don't care about what can happen to me. All I care about is serving the kingdom. I consider my, wife, my life worth nothing to me. If only I may finish the race Complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. What's that task? The task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. His focus wasn't just on teaching. It wasn't just on reaching. It was on service over self. Paul doesn't know what the future holds, except that it holds hardships in prison. But his concern is not about what might happen to him. Rather, it's only about the call of the gospel of grace. And I'm not stopping, he says. I don't know what's next. I just know it's going to be tough. But who cares? Because God is great and good and gracious. And people are dying without Christ and spending eternity separated from God, and I can't live with that, so I've got to keep going. Service over self for the sake of the gospel. In verses 26 to 28, we see that leaders answer to God for faithfulness, not results. Leaders answer to God for faithfulness, not results. Verse 25 moves us into place there. He says that, now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. I don't know what's going to happen, but I know it's going to be a hardship, but I know that I'm not going to be back here with you again. 
Therefore, this is the text we're looking at, Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of all men. I'm telling you this now because I'm not going to see you again. But I don't carry any blood guilt because I haven't kept my mouth shut. For I have not hesitated, verse 27, to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock, excuse me, and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. So Paul is saying, look, I've, I've carried this out faithfully. I've done the job of the watchman in Ezekiel 33. I've declared the truth at all costs. And now you have to do that same thing. Go be overseers. Be shepherds of the flock. But it's not your flock. It's God's flock that He's entrusted to your care. I mentioned Ezekiel 33. You could jot down. I don't think I have it in your program. Ezekiel 33, verses 1 to 9. An Old Testament passage that is exactly what Paul's talking about here. Without turning there, uh, the, the message that we see in Ezekiel 33 is that the watchman, God is speaking to him as the prophet, saying the watchman must sound the alarm. Your job as a prophet is to proclaim my word. If the watchman doesn't sound the alarm when the attack comes, the watchman is guilty of the blood of those who are killed in the attack. But if he does sound the alarm and the people don't respond, he bears no guilt for that because he sounded the alarm. He did what he was supposed to do. He did what he could to warn them. And if they don't respond, their blood is on their own heads. And God called Ezekiel to preach his word that way. The watchman is only responsible for his own duty, not for their response. And that's what Paul is saying here. God's leaders, those who are in leadership in the church, answer to God for their faithfulness. Did they do their job? Not the results. I have to tell you, this is something that that was hard for me to come to grips with, and I think it's why a lot of church leaders end up burned out. Because you get so results-oriented. The performance trap, the success syndrome, whatever you want to call it, you get so focused on, on counting, you know, <laughs> counting how many people are in the seats and what's the budget look like and how, you know, are, are, do we look good? Are we, are we vibrant on the outside? You know, Eugene Peterson, the translator of the, or paraphraser, translator of the message, spent his entire ministry in a tiny little church not not bigger than this or not much bigger than this in obscurity in a valley had a lot of impact on the lives of the people that he was with he answered to god for what he did in that situation billy graham spoke to millions of people he answers to god not for their response or the genuineness of their conversion, but the faithfulness of His preaching. And now He can stand before the Lord and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. I get, I've mentioned before, I get kind of tired of hearing about pastoral burnout and church leader. I get it, and this week I get it better than maybe I have before. But that kind of thing happens when we lose sight of the fact that we don't answer to God for the results. We answer to God 
for our faithfulness. He takes care of the results. We'll get to that a little bit more in a moment. <clears throat> Excuse me. The faithfulness that we answer for includes striving to be as effective as possible and continuing to grow in grace and knowledge of the truth. If my job is to sound the alarm, to blast the trumpet, but I'm not good at blasting the trumpet, then I'm not going to be very successful as a watchman. I, I'm trying to blow that trumpet and all I get is... <laughs> nobody's fleeing the attack. I may have done the job, but it's my responsibility to do the job well. Pride in craft is an important thing, right? Any of you who have hired somebody, you know you want to hire somebody who takes pride in what they do. They want to do a quality job. Why is it that we're so comfortable as Christ followers not having that same approach to our own discipleship. Coming back to leadership. As leaders, what you were yesterday is not ever good enough for what you need to be tomorrow. What you know can make you complacent. We need to be committed. If we're going to be faithful watchmen, faithful shepherds, we need to be committed to learning more and more and more. And we will never exhaust the depths of God's Word. We will never know enough. God knows all of it. But part of our job is the continuing development, the continuing discipleship, to continue to grow in grace and the knowledge of the truth, to blow my horn better than I did before so that more people can hear the warning and flee the attack. That's why we spend money on overseer training to go to things like Basics Conference in, in Cleveland in May, to, to get together to study how to study God's Word so that we can learn more and more about how God intends for us to do the job. It's important. It's part of it. Notice in Ezekiel that watchmen are sentries for defense. They're on the wall, they're watching for the attack, and they're warning everybody. That leads us to the next section, verses 29 to 31 where we see that faithful shepherds defend the flock. Faithful shepherds defend the flock. Starting with verse 29. <clears throat> I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you day and night with tears. There's a lot to break down there. We're not going to take all that. I'm not going to go into all of the false teaching that we deal with in our day. It's ubiquitous. Everywhere you turn, we're faced with distortions of the truth. And the, the money-grubbing, uh, false apostle type person, is, it's almost a, a proverb in our day where people say what, t what uh, itching ears want to hear to be able to gain a following for themselves, to get more likes, 
to get more shares, to sell more books, gain more followers. That's a dangerous thing. And God's leaders must defend the flock against such things. I'm reminded of a, of a line from Mel Gibson's movie, The Patriot. How many of you have seen that? Raise your hand if you've seen that movie. We need more hands. You all got to see this movie, right? When, uh, when they're, they're finally going out to battle and the preacher's going out with them and he takes his frock off and like, you too, Reverend? It's like sometimes as a shepherd, you have to, you have to fight off the wolves. That's our job. We have to defend the flock. We have to fight off the wolves. There are wolves everywhere pretending to be sheep, even too often within the church. God charges leaders to guard the trust, the faith once for all entrusted to the saints. The faithful shepherd will do whatever it takes to provide for the welfare of the flock in his care, including fighting off anything that would bring harm. In fact, in 1 Peter 5.8, he refers to our enemy, the devil, as a lion roaming about, seeking whom he may devour. Church leaders, pastors, overseers, or even the Christian who's a little bit farther down the line, you've been walking that journey a little bit longer than somebody else, it's our job to defend. As the oldest sibling, if somebody's picking on my sister, it's my job to defend her. If they're picking on my little brother, it was my job to defend him. He didn't need a lot of defending. He could handle his business. But... But that's the job. Is it because, you know, I'm, I'm better than them? No, of course not. It's because I was older than them. That's the job. For church leaders, they're not better than you. And every overseer right now ought to say amen. We're not better than anybody else. But we've been given the job of defending the flock. So when we say to you, hey, I don't think you should be listening to that podcast, that's a false teacher. And here's why. Rather than getting up in arms and, and being offended that they, they've said some ill thing about your favorite teacher, listen and search the Scriptures because they're here to defend you. When they tell you that prosperity gospel is harmful, listen and search the Scriptures and find out if it's true. It's so easy to get caught in a cult of personality. Faithful shepherds defend the flock. Notice also in verse 32, loving leaders prayerfully entrust God's people to God's care. Loving leaders prayerfully entrust God's people to God's care. Here's what he says in that, in that single verse there. <clears throat> now I commit you to God. Well, you already got it right there. I commit you to God and to the word of His grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. The focus here is on God's action and the word of His grace. This is what builds you up. Paul recognizes, I'm not the one doing the work. I can't build you up. I can't give you an inheritance. I'm a fellow servant. Only the Father can give the inheritance. A manager or steward must always remember that they are caring for someone else's property. Pastors and overseers must never forget that this is God's church, not their own. It is our church and that we belong to you as you belong to us. We're all together. But this is God's church. What's more, 
The manager, the steward, the loving leader must recognize that they do not ultimately have the power to save or sanctify, but the true shepherd, the owner of the flock, does have that power. The power to save and to sanctify, to build up and give an inheritance. Under shepherds, managers can't give an inheritance. Only the only, only the, only the father, only the owner can do that. Loving leaders prayerfully entrust God's people to God's care. Verses 33 to 35 tell us that those who lead the church must be moved by unselfish love, not personal gain. Those who lead the church must be moved by unselfish love, not personal gain. Notice, excuse me, I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. And then he uses, again, his personal example to say, look, this is, you saw this. And Paul, in in a few places, makes the case, makes the point for supporting ministry, that the the workman is worthy of his wages and and don't muzzle the ox while he's training out the grain and all that. So Paul's not opposed to, in fact, he, he appeals to it several times. He's not opposed to supporting ministers. His point is, in his own life, he made it clear that that can't be the motivation. If you have a preacher or anybody else who claims to represent Christ who is motivated by the money, run. That's a wolf. That's not a sheep. Run away. He uses his own example to say, you you saw, you yourselves know that these hands of mine supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. I was going through the hardships already, but I didn't want to be a burden to you and I didn't want you to think I was here trying to scam you. So I... I worked through this on my own, making tents to pay for my, own, for my own way. And everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, I'm trying to set an example for you to know this as well for yourself. By this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remembering the words the Lord Jesus Himself said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Godly leaders know that. Godly leaders aren't takers, they're givers. Those who lead the church must be moved by unselfish love, not personal gain. For as long as there has been a church, there have been charlatans and schemers trying to pose as God's ministers in order to prey upon God's people. All the way back in Acts 8, we see the scammer saying, hey, give me some of this Holy Spirit business so I can go, can I, can I buy it from you? Can I buy the Holy Spirit from you? Because I want to be able to do this. It's all throughout the book of Acts. As soon as you get true teachers you get some someone coming in mimicking that true teaching that's really a false teacher so they can gain influence take advantage of god's people the true christian leader is the opposite they are unmoved by money rather they are impelled driven from within by love money of course is a necessary tool you know that can't Keep the building without money. You can't you know, send missionaries overseas without money. You can't print Bibles without money. Money is a necessary tool. But the man of God cannot see it as any more than that. Ever. Or as we saw uh, in our recent Bible study in Desiring God, you begin to serve the money. You begin to believe the lie that the money is providing for you. Money's not providing you anything. God is providing. Money's a tool that God provides. 
So if God provides the tool, you use it for God's purposes. You find Christian leaders who think that that tool is something for them to chase after. They don't belong in leadership. Run fast and far. Those who lead the church must be moved by unselfish love, not personal gain. Verses 36 to 38. Notice the result of Christ-like leadership is mutual affection and earned respect. The result of Christ-like leadership is mutual affection and earned respect. This culminating paragraph here is a description of, of the experience that they have as they're about to depart. Paul's given this exhortation, this encouragement, this challenge, all of, all of these things he's given to these overseers, these elders, to send back to, to Ephesus to do the work. Verse 36, when he had said this, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. He didn't just walk away. It wasn't, you know, you know I'm, I'm here, uh, listen to me, now I'm on to my next job kind of thing. He knelt down with them. And he prayed with them. There's an investment there. Notice in verse 37, they all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. This is a group of Middle Eastern men gathered together. They're in leadership positions, probably, as most leaders do, struggling with pride at times. Here they are kneeling on the ground with Paul, weeping and praying. What grieved them most in verse 38 was the statement that they would never see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. They, they were hurting because of the love that they had and the loss that they were feeling knowing that this was the end. And they would not see him again this side of heaven. When leaders live, love, and lead the way Paul here exhorts the Ephesian elders, they look a lot like Jesus. And Jesus is beautiful. The more men... Let me just speak to men here for a second. The more you look like Jesus, the easier it is for your woman to be in love with you. Well, she's not responding to me the way I want her to. She, the feelings seem to be gone. Guys, listen. You love her like Jesus, and it's going to hurt. It hurt him, didn't it? But how can you receive that kind of love and not be absolutely crazy about the person giving it to you? When you live like Jesus, and everything that you do in that relationship, and living and loving and leading like Jesus, man, you make it a whole lot easier for your wife to submit to you. Now you go around like the bully saying, Woman, I am man, make me sandwich. You can do what I say. Uh, let me tell you how that's going to go, right? You love her like Jesus? <laughs> You're not ever going to have to tell her one time. A true leader never has to tell that I'm in charge. I don't have to point to the bars on my collar and say, hey, salute me. Because character shows. 
Hired hands who only come to tend the flock for reasons of the flesh do not invest themselves in the flock God has entrusted to them. They see themselves as separate, above, higher. These things apply to you, but not to me. right? So it's important for you to come to all these things, but I don't need to come to these things. It's important for you to give, but it's not important for me to give. I'm, I'm troubled by the number of people that I've met over the years. I don't know anybody personally, and I've stopped asking about it the number of, of ministers who don't tithe. Well, you know, I'm, the, the money comes from the church, so it doesn't matter. Dude, it's not about that. It's about your heart. A minister who doesn't tithe, that, that, that's just absolutely mind-blowing to me. Because the point is not about the money. The point is about your heart toward the money and toward God. If you see yourself as separate, as somehow different, you're not qualified to be a leader of God's people. If you think this is about your talent, well, I'm good enough and I'm smart enough and I've earned it. I've paid my dues. I should be a leader. You're not qualified. If you're trying to be a pastor because of your great education and you went to the right schools and you've, you've checked all the boxes and therefore somebody needs to hire me because this is, we would never say it, but we think it. This is owed to me. I deserve this. You're not qualified. The godly leader is a member of the body first and foremost. And godly leaders don't forget that. Godly leaders are keenly and constantly aware that Christ Himself is the only head of His church. Christ alone. He is our cornerstone. The result of Christ-like leadership is mutual affection and earned respect. We gain the affection by giving love. We earn the respect through integrity. Be someone worthy of respect, and you will never have to ask for it. All right, so as, as we wrap this up, if we don't live like this as, as church leaders, it, it's easy for us to see that this can end in scandal, right? A, 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 a church leader who has secrets, who isn't living openly, who you know is, is doing one thing in front of you for you to see it, but his wife and kids knows differently, right? You know what I'm talking about? You can see easily how that can end up in scandal. And that does happen. But more commonly, and and almost in a sense more significantly because of how common it is, it ends in failure. It ends in burnout. Because you're trying to do in your strength, as, as a leader of God's people, what only God can do. You're trying to make this about you, about your church, about your organization, about your success, or your preaching, or your teaching. And so then you see the failure and the pressure comes down hard. Man, I really blew it. I, why isn't anybody getting saved under my ministry? Why aren't we growing? Why, why this? Why that? And, and, and it takes a toll and it ends up in burnout. And it ev- inevitably has to end in failure because the job for you is exactly the opposite of that. The job is to shepherd God's flock, not to grow your own. This call to leaders is actually the call to all of us. 
every single one of us, need to live lives rooted in love and openness. That's what church life is all about. We saw it in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. I don't think I wrote that in your program, but if you're not remembering it from last week, you can jot that down. Acts 2, 42 to 47. We see the picture of what happens in the church. This is the same call for leaders is the call for all of us. A church will, as a matter of course, take on the culture, personality, and discipleship of its leaders. Leaders, if you want to evaluate yourself, look at the people around you. What you see in them is a reflection of you. Whenever I see shortcomings in the congregation, it's a reflection of my shortcomings. That's the reality. It's the nature of leadership. People follow. They follow your example. Not your words. I think we all know this about parenting, right? I can say one thing, but my kids are going to do what they see. Values are more caught than taught. Real Christian leadership is rooted in love and openness. What's true for leaders is true for all of us. As the church of Jesus Christ, His body, His bride, His family, we must prioritize living as such. Living as His church, His body, His bride, His family. We must prioritize doing life together, loving one another. Church life can never be less than meeting together on the Lord's Day. On the contrary, it must always be more. We're not legalists saying, you know, oh, I missed a Sunday. Oh, no, what am I doing? I'm losing God's favor. Get that junk out of your head. But if it's not my priority, if anything else is more important to me, then gathering with God's people on the Lord's day, then i got to check something in here. My priorities aren't right. And it will take a toll, for sure. The flip side of that coin is, if I think that's enough, something's not right in here as well. If I've come and I've checked my... my <laughs> for some people, it's an hour of church. <laughs> not here. Anyway... Uh, <laughs> If I've checked my Sunday morning box, now I'm good. I'm covered for the week, right? And that's not discipleship. Can we really, can we honestly evaluate that and say, oh yeah, I think I'm doing everything that God expects me to do because I showed up and I checked a box on Sunday morning. No. Not less. Always more than that. We must be committed to doing life together in love and openness. We must always demand that of our leaders. I guess this is the thing I want us to to leave with here in thinking about church leadership. We, you, but we, because we're in it together, we must demand more than what we have seen over the generations in church leadership. We must always demand doing life together in love and openness of our leaders. Not perfection. They're not perfect. They're not going to be perfect. We must not ask our leaders to be perfect. There's only one Jesus. However, 
we have a right and a duty to expect our leaders to live holy lives. If we are united to Christ, we should increasingly look like Christ. The Holy Spirit should be guiding us, causing us to grow in love, in humility. Pride is the opposite of discipleship. We must expect our leaders to live holy lives worthy of the name Christian. They, we, must be growing in grace and the knowledge of the truth. And they must be the example to all of what it looks like to live, <clears throat> to live our lives out in the open. Driven by love. Reflecting the reality of Christ in us through these loving, open, authentic relationships. Nothing hidden. Nothing fake. The real Jesus living through us in our real lives causing a real change that leads us to living a real, authentic Christian life. Not because we're good, but because He's good and He's in us. Let's pray. Father God, this is a, a, this is a message that is hard for me to preach, you know. Because after all this time, I'm still uncomfortable wearing the title of pastor. Lord, I thank you for your grace to me personally, to all of us as those who have been redeemed by the blood of your Son. And Lord, I thank you that you don't leave us to stumble in the dark. You don't just save us and then let us go. You include us in your family. You call us together. You've given us instructions. And your commands are good and life-giving. And you've given us one another in the church so that we can walk together and spur one another on to good works, encouraging one another, speaking the truth and love, speaking to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs as we build value into one another's lives by the beautiful grace of your gospel. So, Lord, we pray as our Lord did. Let thy kingdom come. Let thy will be done in us, in your church, on earth as it is in heaven. We pray this in Jesus' name, by His strength. Amen.